We're going through the book of Matthew, and we got partway done with this little vignette, this little episode in the life of Jesus last week, and we'll continue and finish it this week. This is the account of the famous saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's read together the word of God as Matthew, the apostle, records it for us, beginning with verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Now last week we looked at the first few verses, verse 15 through uh, verse, uh, I guess, 16. Actually, I think last week we only looked at verse 16. And what we saw in verse 16 is that everything about the people that come to Jesus, everything about it is false. Their approach to him is false because they approach him through flattery. And they don't even approach him directly. In the case of the Pharisees, they send their disciples. And the point of that is to cloak their approach. And when they approach him, they say to him, teacher, well, that would be equivalent in this community of saying professor, you know, or professor emeritus. You know, it's a term of high honor. Teacher, we know that you are four things, truthful, teach the way of God in truth, defer to no one, and you're not partial to any. Now, those are high commendations coming from people who were very, very good at flattery. You couldn't think of four things you'd rather have said about yourself as a preacher or a professor, could you? That you are truthful, that you teach the way of God in truth, that you actually profess something. All right. Number three, that you defer to no one, not even the department head, not even the vice chancellor, right? And fourth, that you're not partial to any. That the good-looking students don't have your attention, the white students, the students that are top students, but that you're impartial, that when you uh, grade your papers, uh, grade the exams, when you serve on the dissertation committee, that you're not partial. You're not partial to the professors that have more influence and power. You're not partial to anyone. And so this is high commendation to Jesus Christ, isn't it? That he's truthful that he defers to no one, that he's not partial to anyone, and that he's truthful in terms of the way of God. In other words, about spiritual matters. And so then we move on to verse 17, and we see the question that they've thought up to trap Jesus. And the question is this. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? 
So here's the question. The poll tax was a specific tax paid in tribute to Rome, and it was paid directly to Rome. There were a variety of other indirect taxes, sales taxes, customs, etc., and it was the, the job of the tax collectors, like Matthew, to collect those taxes. But this particular tax was a tax that was directly to Rome, and so this tax, more than any other tax, symbolized the, uh, the occupying power. Now, the occupying power of Rome had been there for a century now. And so they had a long history of Rome being an occupying power and an overwhelming power in the life of, of their country of Palestine. And this particular poll tax was one that represented that authority, that occupying power more than any other. It demonstrated submission and even allegiance to imperial Rome. In fact, it was the main act of obeisance to Rome's authority and power done by a Jew. And so... It was hated above all other taxes by the Jews. They hated it. Now, they didn't just hate it because it represented the occupying power. They hated it because this coin was anathema to them. This coin had images on both sides. Thank you, dear brother. This coin had images on both sides. On one side, it had the head of Caesar. On the flip side, it had Caesar on a throne with a diadem on his head, dressed like a high priest. And here are the inscriptions that were on both sides. The inscription said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. And so if you call yourself a son of God, this means that you are what? You're equal to God. This is the accusation Jesus had against him. And so this is a claim of divinity on the part of Caesar. And that was all through the emperor of Rome. I mean, it was just constant. It had gotten to such a degree that to say Caesar no longer referred to an individual. It referred to the person at the top. All right. So on one side it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, son of God. And then on the opposite side it said, Pontiff Maximor, highest priest. Now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that uh, we have in this question uh, an amazing uh, confluence of a whole bunch of like things that are completely, completely uh, offensive to Jews. On the one hand, we have the coin representing the authority, and, and, and this coin was the coin that was used to pay the poll tax. The denarius was the coin for the poll tax. Um, it was a silver coin. It was about a day's wages. Wouldn't that be nice if our primary uh, political allegiance to the United States of America was taken care of by one day's wages? What is it, like May 1st now, right? Okay, um, And so the denarius was the coin manufactured that was to pay that. And a curious thing about this coin is that uh, there were three things that were hateful about it to the good Jew. One thing was that it represented the oppressive uh, uh, Roman Empire, the occupying power. 
But another thing was that it had images on both sides. You read all the commentaries, they all say the same thing about this. And what is it? What they say is that the reason this coin was hated was not just because it represented Rome, and not just because it had blasphemy on it, making Caesar equal to God, God himself, but that it had images on both sides. Now, here's a problem that we have. Because we live in the most idolatrous culture that has ever existed on the face of the earth. If you want to know how idolatrous we are, go to any rock and roll concert. Any. Christian, secular, no, not quite. I mean, there are some Christian concerts that aren't idolatrous. Many of them are. But you look at a secular rock and roll concert, you watch movies of it, it's just pure idolatry. Do we all recognize this? If you're not a believer, this is a shock to you. But that's the purpose of rock concerts, is to receive and to give worship to the star. All right, it's, it's even purer than movies. And so in the midst of idolatry, our senses have been desensitized so that we don't recognize it. And so everywhere we go, we have images, and we think nothing of the images. Now, it would be one thing for us to just have images of our mother and our father on our, on our, on our dresser in our bedroom, right? Or in our wallet, an image of our children and our wives, right? Or on our driver's license, a picture. Do you have a picture ID? You know, this would be relatively innocuous because they're all necessary, much like the coin makes it necessary, right? The image of Caesar, but it's how we pay, pay the poll tax, right? The problem is that even in the church, we don't just have images everywhere, but we have images of Jesus Christ everywhere. And typically throughout history, the way we escape the second commandment is by saying that um, all it forbids is images that are the object of worship. And then we say, and so really the problem with the uh, denarius is that it had the image of Caesar, and then it said, son of God, so really the image is calling for worship on, on the coin. But in America today, it says there, in God we trust, so George Washington doesn't matter. Right? Because it says in God we trust. And nobody thinks George Washington is God, right? And then we come into the church, even Reformed Presbyterian Baptist Reformed Protestant churches. And in our churches, we have Bible story books that have Jesus and God in them. And we say even that doesn't matter because nobody's asking them to worship that page. It's just a representation of God. And the reason is good, because we want our children to be able to identify with Jesus actually having flesh and blood and being on this earth. How will they know that if there aren't pictures of him in the Bible story book? And so what we've done is we've absolutely destroyed the second commandment. It doesn't even exist. It's, It's like the Constitution. It's a living document, so it's completely dead. Completely. Now, some of you um, read a blog I, I write and know that my brother feels very strongly about this, and some of you don't know that at all. But some of you have engaged him in debate, 
And what I want to say to you this morning is every single commentary, every single one, says that one of the three reasons this poll tax was heinous to the Jews is that it had pictures on the coin. Nobody doubts it. Nobody denies it. Everybody knows it. And they all say, and the reason the pictures are wrong is that they're a violation of the second commandment. They don't say it's a violation of uh, giving worship only to God, because that's contained in the inscription. Son of God. All right? And so everybody sees that as a discrete thing. The image is a discrete thing. Do you see? Three offenses. Occupying power, images, blasphemy. And so what do we do with this when we look back at pious Jews who feared God and hated the coin because of the image that it had on it? And I'm going to tell you, I have no idea. I don't. I certainly know that my brother is right in saying that the idolatry of our age with images is unbelievable. Now, what do you think is going on with all the worship of actors and actresses? Do you think that this is just a hobby? What do you think when you watch commercials and you hear, you know, the... Uh, uh, oh, how would I say it? Um... Who's the Wagner? You know, what do you think when Wagner comes on behind a majestic commercial? Not a cheesy one, but a majestic one, typically with sport figures. What do you think when choirs sing behind sports figures in ads? Does it ever occur to you that this is idolatry? What do you think when the NBA stars run out under the lights with the pulsing beat and and all this stuff, and here they are in all their glory? Does it ever occur to you? What do you think when you go to a rock concert? Does it ever occur to you that this is idolatry? What do you think when you go to a poetry reading? Come on, be honest. Artists are... The, the high priests of our culture. Us. They are. What do you think? What do you think when you pick up a Christian book and you see a very handsome face on the back cover in glossy color? Does it ever occur to you that the purpose of that picture of a handsome man or a foxy woman is to get you to buy that book? Do you notice what books don't have pictures of the author on them? I mean... We have become desensitized to idolatry because it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The idolatry of images is everywhere. It takes up our living rooms. It's in our magazines. And, you know, you might say, well, I'm repenting of pornography. And I say, good. That's where we draw the line? Pictures of Jesus and God in storybooks, Bible storybooks, pictures. But we won't have a Virgin Mary in our backyard bathtub. And we won't have pornography. I'm fighting it this week. And that's the second commandment? That's the second commandment? I mean, is your conscience right with that? 
you say, well, pastor, it's your job to specify how we are to be obedient to the law of God. And I say, no, it's my job to take out a scotch bright pad and to use the word of God to rub your heart until it is restored to some sensitivity to the holiness of God. And it is your job to go before God and to ask him what your obligation is with the second commandment. Now, I admit that I have obligations to show you some boundaries. I'm not going to do that this morning, except to say, if you don't see that one of the reasons this coin was heinous to Jews was because it had images on it, then you haven't begun to understand the second commandment. We are not to make graven images. Graven images can, in fact, be pictures of things that God has made. Not simply pictures of God or Jesus, not simply pictures of Mary where we say she's the co-redemptrix and we have her on a statue. So I'm sorry I can't put you out of your misery, but you do need to pray about this and you need to think about this. It may be that your pornography lust is a reflection of the idolatry that consumes your life and that you need to go back a little bit further than simply right here where this false intimacy is. Way, way back. Maybe you have spent your life looking at commercials of women who don't really exist. And so your whole expectation for what a woman will look like is is so perverted that you can't love your wife. And, And you don't think of the commercials, you just think of pornography. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your whole life is given over to images that don't exist. They don't exist. You know, that really sensitive guy who always comes home wanting to talk to you about what happened in your day? You know, the one in the romance song? The, you know, the guy on, on, on the soap operas? You know, the guy that Jane Austen writes about? He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. I was thinking last night, about Lucas and Hannah. Now, one of the privileges of being in this church, if you're my family, is you get to be talked about in sermons. That's because kids make the best illustrations. And this is Hannah, and this is Lucas. Raise your hands. And they're about to be married, unless one or the other calls it off, up until the moment of the declaration of consent. And once that's over, you may not call it off. Okay, so they're downstairs, we're downstairs yesterday, and all of a sudden they notice that Lucas has vanished, and here are men in the living room, and Lucas has vanished, and I'm thinking, where is Lucas? And as I'm sitting there thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, Lucas belongs with the men. Where is Lucas? And then I realize where Lucas is. Lucas is capturing a bride. Now, the sad thing is, we all know what's going to happen in a few months, don't we? Lucas is going to go back to capturing male companionship. I'm sorry you women aren't laughing, but men are. (laughs) Okay, thank you, Esther. (laughs) And so, you know, we think about this issue of uh, how in our lives we mediate the tension between what we want And what advertising is set up to tell us that we should have, you know how every advertising line today begins either with the right choice 
Or it begins with, you, you deserve this, right? We're constantly being told that we deserve a thing. You know, do you hear that in ad- advertising? And so women are sold a bill of goods about what good men are, and that the world is filled with good men, read intimate men, read men that like to talk about their feelings with you. All right? And men have their head filled with the idol of perfect flesh that doesn't have bad breath. Do you understand? And these are idols. And we're sucking them in constantly. And then we are surprised that we come to a computer in the privacy of our office or bedroom. And we fall into a violation, not just of the second commandment, but now what? Remember what it says about David? He's on his roof. At the time, the kings go to war. And he looked. And pretty soon he's what? He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Right? People think about graven images. Think about them. What is the television? What are your magazines? What are your movies? Do you really think that there is a Christian on the face of the earth that would be worse off if he swore off movies for the rest of his life? One? Maybe Steve Moxie. And maybe the Crumb Brothers. But other than that, I think the rest of us could process our spirituality without movies. Okay, let's move on. There's a lot of good things to read on the second commandment, and I'd be happy to turn you that way. But the truth is, if you just type second commandment into Google and then read, I guarantee you there will just be tons of helpful things. You might have to type in Bible. You might have to type in idolatry. So, Quote, second commandment, unquote, and then idolatry, Bible, or any other, and then hit return. I dare you. All right, now let's move on. What else is going on here? Well, this is where we're going to end. As I began to study the text, a quote came to me that I think every Christian should know very well. And the quote is Samuel Johnson, who was the original lexicographer of English. He did the first dictionary. Johnson says this. He says, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Now, for those of us who are patriots, those of us who have served or do serve in the military, that seems like a very awful thing to say. But what we have to understand is that many of the most evil things that have ever been done on the face of the earth have been done in the name of a nation. You think of the 50 to 100 million people who were executed in the 20th century by communist governments. Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao Zedong. Patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Every single one of them was done in the name of the state. It's amazing that Americans think 
that we can give over increasing amounts of power and authority to our state and escape the consequences of those nations that just did it in the 20th century. And yet we're scared to death about religious fundamentalism. Think of secular authority and the massive murders of the 20th century as opposed to religious fundamentalism. Now, am I saying religious fundamentalism isn't a danger? No, I'm not saying that. It is a danger. It is clear that across history, religious zealots have also executed many people. There's no question about that. They have their tens of thousands, and the atheists have their hundreds of millions. Do you understand me? Now, does that mean the tens of thousands aren't wrong? Does that mean that Calvin was right in executing Servetus? No, it doesn't. But people, it's not our conscience that is bad in the world today. It is secularists. And every year, 1.3 million children in this country, and that doesn't mean the elderly, it doesn't mean the defective newborn like Baby Doe at Bloomington Hospital, And is this done in the name of religion? No. It's done in the name of self-determination, autonomy, women's rights, feminism. All right? So, as a Christian, you're not even going to be able to think about these things properly until you begin to be a little bit suspicious of the claims of the state. And a little bit aware of how patriotism and our love for country and our love for race and our love for nationality influences our ability to even hear what goes on with Jesus. So when the Herodians and when the Pharisees' disciples approach Jesus and they say, tell us, what do you think? You know, you're speaking to the creator of the universe, but you want to know what he thinks. Tell us. What do you think? Is it right to pay the tax? What's going on there? Well, what's going on is that everybody there hates Rome. Everyone, even the Herodians hate it. They've just made their peace with it and think that's the best approach. The masses of people hate Rome and think every time a zealot comes along, they're going to jump on the bandwagon and be in rebellion. All right? And Jesus is at the center of this conflict where you have... Now, earlier in the first service, I made this statement, and people misunderstood it. So let me say at the beginning, I'm not making a statement against the Americans' role in Iraq. Okay? I'm making no political statement. I'm simply trying to get you to feel the tension. Think of Rome as being the United States, and think of Iraq as being the Palestinians, the Jews. And you get some idea of how they felt about Rome. A hundred years of this. Taxes all over the place. A shock and awe campaign that in that time was just as intense as our laser-guided bombs. All right? They hated Rome as the Iraqis hate us. You say, oh, there are many that love us. There are many that are pleased that a new oppressor has come to take the place of the old oppressor. I agree with you. There are many who see our oppression as much more benevolent than Saddam Hussein. But put yourself in the time. I'm not making any political statement. Put yourself in Iraq. You're an Iraqi. How would you feel? This is how the Jews felt. They hated the Roman oppressor. They hated him. All right? 
And so they're asking Jesus whether they should do obeisance, whether they should pay the tribute, whether they should acknowledge the need for submission to an overwhelming shock and awe empire that has now occupied their land for a hundred years. And it's symbolized in this little coin, silver coin, about a day's wages with his face on one side and his face on the other. One claiming he's the high priest, one claiming he's the son of God. Patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Because what they're really doing is they're making an appeal to the nationalistic identity of their fellow Jews standing there. And they know that they have him coming and going. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, well, then the Roman civil authority has their shock and awe in hand. (laughs) You know, it will descend on him. And soon enough, it does. But if he says that they should pay the tax, all the masses who ultimately have their final allegiance to Palestine, to their nation, to their people, they're going to be absolutely opposed. So here Jesus is. He has to choose between pleasing Rome and pleasing his own people. Patriotism is the refuge of the scoundrel. In other words, it's a dilemma that he can't get out of. Right? And they've just gotten done flattering him. Right? And very, very interestingly, they flattered him precisely at the point which will stroke his ego such that he will say something that he ought not to say. You are no respecter of persons. Now tell us, isn't Rome wrong? So do you feel the tension? He can choose between submission to the shock and awe of the Roman Empire. He can choose patriotism. And if you look at this and you say, well, you know, this is something it's hard for me to identify with, I say you haven't begun to look at your attitude towards the United States of America. Every single one of you is seduced by the patriotism of America that demands that you have a greater allegiance to the United States, to its power, to its authority, to its wealth, to its pride, than you have to Jesus Christ. And all of us are tested about this issue constantly. And you say, how? And I say, well, because you refuse to think about abortion for what it is. Why? Well, because it's the, the Pax Romana. It, it's the peace of America. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the way we resolve the tension. It's the law of the land. And right there you're choosing submission to nationalism and to patriotism over God. Because you don't want to look at something as being evil because after all, America is a Christian nation, right? Apple pie, motherhood, and America. Okay? Do you understand this? Can I sing? America, America, God shed his grace on thee. And we all believe that if we're patriotic in this country, it's right, whereas all other countries it was wrong, right? But this is God's country. And Coors makes its millions.
Now, if you've served in the military right now, you're ready to be the executor of the preacher. Because the fact is, there is much good about America. The fact is, many of the men and women who founded this country were godly. The fact is, I think one of the reasons our country works well is that this was maybe the first country that ever took seriously the reform doctrine of the depravity of man. Because we have, what, three branches of government. Written right into the core of our Constitution is the need that the only way you keep absolute power in check is that you have three branches of government fighting against each other. I mean, that's the genius of our system. The problem is that the executive branch, the legislative branch, have forgotten they have to discipline the judicial branch. (laughs) Impeach them! Now, that was a political statement. (laughs) But forget it, because that's not what I care about. You have to be very, very careful and realize the degree to which Every single human being is a mass of self-interest masquerading as benevolence, justice, mercy, uh, even-handedness, fairness. Every single one of us, every single one of us is a mass of self-interest which tries to pass itself off as any number of virtues. How could the Jews pass themselves off as they refuse to pay the tax? They could say it's a violation of the second commandment. They could say it's blasphemy. And they could say that we are God's what? Chosen people. Right? They had even more legitimacy than we have. And so is it right? What do you think? Should we pay the tax or should we not pay the tax? Today, we have great conceit as Christians in America. We think that our nation is, in fact, righteous. We think that our military never does anything wrong. We think that abortion is just something you sweep under the carpet, and the minute you're around a German, you punch his nose about Nazi Germany. Do you understand? We have these ways of juggling our national identity in such a way as to feel self-righteous. Okay? And so instead of being Christians, we're Americans and then Christians. And we even think, which is laughable, we think that we've repented of racism. Well, that was what the Civil War was about, and that's done. We don't think that we have racial snobbery, preference, prejudice. We've repented of that. So we are the enlightened nation, the evolved nation. We're, we're the progressive nation. You know, we send money all over the world. We, we've repented of racism. Our military never does anything wrong. All right. And abortion. Our preacher never mentions it. So, so let me ask you. Isn't it true that every single one of you who's a wife feels superior permanently to her husband? Just be honest with me. 
Isn't that in the nature of femininity, to feel superior to masculinity? I mean, be honest, come on. And every man here feels superior to his wife. Every professor feels superior to his students, and every student thinks I'll make more money than he does in a few years. Every person in the congregation looks at the preacher and says, that's the one we pay to be pious, to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. And every preacher says, they have to listen to me, nanny, nanny, poo, poo. Every race, every nation, every county, every city looks down on the city next to it. Do we respect Spencer? Do we respect Martinsville? Do we respect Bedford? Does Carmel respect us? People listen. Whether it's a nation, a race, whether it's educational level, whether it's the sex, male, female, we are always, always, always interested in ourselves and we always think we're righteous in other people. Have you ever been around kids playing like, for instance, uh, uh, what's it we play in here? Well, Foursquare. Have you ever been around kids playing Foursquare? Have you ever seen a kid that doesn't think that his motivation was right and the other person's was wrong, that he kept the rules, they broke the rules? So now, Jesus, tell us what you think. Is it right to pay the tax or not? He's a Jew. He's surrounded by Jews. They're occupied by a foreign, by a foreign oppressor for 100 years now. It's overwhelming. And how does Jesus respond? Here's Jesus' response. Jesus looks at them, and it says in verse 18 that he perceived their malice. Now, if you are agreed that all of us should cultivate our ability to be suspicious of our motives, particularly when it comes to patriotism, and to not just think that we're everybody as good as we think we are as a nation or as people, not that we're evil. I got done telling a German this week that deals with uh, currency around the world that he was telling me that America is, for 10 years, has allowed its currency to pretty much be at market forces. But when the Asian countries begin to invest in European currencies, he says they're going to run into the protectionist mindset of European powers. And I looked at him and I said, that's still one of the beautiful things about America. America still has a basic orientation of generosity towards the world that Europe has long ago lost. Now, you may disagree with that. I don't care if you disagree with it. I'm probably wrong. But you get my point. My point is there are many good things about America. I do love America. And if you've ever been overseas and you've come back home, it's sweet. It's sweet. Jesus perceived their malice and he said what? Why are you testing me? Here's another thing. Have you ever noticed that to be a Christian in America today means to repent of having any discernment and to carefully set up your life in such a way that you will never get any? To be a Christian in America today is to only see good in other people all the time. But do you know that that is absolutely contrary to Scripture? 
Do you know that Scripture says the whole book of Proverbs is a screaming attack upon the naive man, calling him a fool? Martin Lloyd Jones said he was he was a physician, and then he went into um, then he went into the pastorate. He'd been the number two physician to the queen, and he said that the most sophisticated psychiatrist or psychologist knows nothing about the human, about man that the Christian knows simply by listening to the scripture that says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? In other words, you're far ahead of somebody who spent years studying psychology or psychiatry if all you know is that the heart of man is so deceptive and so wicked that it's hard to even fathom it. And so it says here, Jesus perceived their malice. And I say to you, you are to perceive the malice of those that you're around. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not, that's not godly. Love always expects the best. Judge not lest ye be judged. But him who is without sin cast the first stone. And we trot out these verses that we use to trump all of the verses that say things like, don't cast your pearls before swine, which is the verse that comes immediately after Jesus saying, judge not lest ye be judged. And here Jesus is, and he says what? He perceived their malice, says Matthew, and he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And we say, but that's Jesus. And I say, you know, it's amazing how much of Jesus' righteousness we think has no application to us. It's amazing to have a champion that we don't want to be like. (laughs) I want to be like Mike. I don't want to be like Jesus. I don't want to have his discernment. I don't want to be straight shooting. I don't want to suffer, really. That's the point. I don't want to suffer. Because if you speak to the leaders of your nation the way he's speaking to them right here, you know one thing, right? You're going to suffer. Right? You're going to suffer. If you speak up in your department for the pig farmer, He can't get a dissertation committee together. His major professor despises him and cloaks it very carefully. This is a real pig farmer in the business school a few years ago. And a friend of mine getting his Ph.D. told me about the pig farmer. Now, if you've ever been a farmer or lived in the country, you know that there is a certain pecking order of farmers. And I'm sorry to tell you, pig farmers are not near the top. And you're sitting at the lunchroom at the cafeteria at school, and there's a, there's a child there who has terrible acne. Terrible. And every single son, time you go into that cafeteria, that child sits alone. There's what? Two black kids and Spencer in the cafeteria. Does anybody ever sit with them? There's what? Bob in a wheelchair. And he's hard to understand. There's what? A single person who has her children because her husband left her. And what are you going to say to her? Do you understand? 
All through our lives, there are points at which we can identify with those who are oppressed, who are treated unjustly, who are passed over, or we can act as if we don't see it, and we can say, thank God that I'm not single, thank God I'm not black, thank God I'm not a pig farmer, thank God that I don't have acne, thank God I'm not in a wheelchair and can't speak. But do you think that those who are consistently choosing to do what scratches their own back are ever admitting what it is they're doing when they pass by Bob in the wheelchair? Do you ever look inside of yourself and perceive your own malice? And you see, if you can't perceive your own malice, you'll never perceive anybody else's malice. And you'll certainly never stand on the side of the oppressed. Do you understand that? Because true spirituality begins with knowing God and knowing yourself. And it's not until you begin to know yourself that you begin to know others. The reason you hate discernment is because you hate repentance. Do you understand that? So here's an idea. And it's cheerful. And it's beautiful. Look at who you are. Look at who you are. (laughs) It's so liberating. You know what's beautiful in a home is when the father confesses his sin to his children. (laughs) You know what's awful in a home is when a father is never, ever, ever going to admit he's wrong. Boy, that's an oppression you can't get out from under. You know, here's an idea. Tell your wife who you are. She already knows it. And then, guess what's going to happen? Guess what's going to happen? Your discernment. In other words, your similarity to Jesus Christ is going to grow. You're going to take on the image of Jesus Christ. You know what that image is going to say? Perceiving their malice, he said to them, you hypocrites. (laughs) Okay, okay. Listen to this. If you were to nominate, this is a university community, and so we have to deal with the university sins, right? If you were to nominate the university for one sin above all others, what would it be? Clearly, pride. That's it. What's number two? Number two is hypocrisy. And you say, well, no, the university doesn't claim to be Christian. I say, come on, hypocrisy is copying a posture of one thing when you're really something else. That's hypocrisy. And who is better at copying postures than academics? It's mind-boggling. You say, well, that's, that's a generalization. And I say, yeah, it is. It is a generalization. And generalizations are generally true. And the fact is the university is filled with people who are passive-aggressive. People who smile and talk softly while they're killing the people that they're speaking about. You know what it's like. I've had it in my seminary. Never forget this godly man. Every class began with the most mind-bogglingly biblical, wonderful prayer I've ever heard in my life. But every single time the subject turned in his lectures to dispensationalists, hair 
straight back Joe, you know, ha, hold on. He hated dispensationalists. But it was all done in, in the most gentlemanly way. Jesus perceived their malice and he named it. And let me tell you, it, how, many, how many session meetings, elders meetings, I have seen this. There's a great battle over what the right thing to do is. And there's one man in there that makes as if he's for peace when he's actually for war. And he cloaks what he's saying in the most careful approach. And what's going on there is hypocrisy. And if you ask the elders about my many sins, one of the sins you'll find out is that when somebody is a hypocrite in an elders meeting, I'm out of control and a contentious man. And I am sinning. But, man, it makes me see red when people act as if they're one thing when they're really something else. No Christian should ever do that. And you as a Christian should be as adept at recognizing it as Jesus demonstrates himself being. You say, well, I can't. I'm not God. And I say, well, then cultivate your ability to see it because justice and truth and peace and mercy, everything depends upon Christians being able to see when there's a precious, when there's oppression and when all these sins are done. We should see them. This is why you exist, to be like Christ, to stand on the side of truth and mercy and justice and love and all that's good in the world. Get away with me from me with your sacrifices and your offerings and your, and your hymns. And then what does God say he wants? Let justice roll down. God loves truth in the inward parts. He loves it. If you love truth, you'll never go wrong. And if you love truth, you'll start with your own repentance, and then you'll bring repentance to other people. And you may do it much more tenderly and godly than I do it. God bless you. We need people that are a lot better than me at doing it. But start! And then Jesus gives the answer we've all been waiting for. He says, show me the coin. They brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then what does he say? He says this. He says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, here's my final point. All of us would love it if Jesus had said that because of the illegitimacy of the authority of Rome and because of the image that was on both sides of the coin and because of the blasphemy that was printed in the inscription, that they should find a way out of the tax. Right? We'd love it. Every wife here would like to say that because of the illegitimacy of her husband's authority, because he's a control freak and because he didn't have devotions last night, that they don't have to submit to him. Right? 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 Come on, women, speak up. Speak in church. Right. Every slave would like to say that because his master is oppressive and because his master stole his wife, that he doesn't have to submit to his master. Right? Right? Right. Now, you understand what I'm saying. 
Christians are characterized by what? Submission to authority. And it ain't no threat to godliness to take the coin with the image and the inscription of the hated foreign oppressor and to do your civic duty. It is no threat to God for godly Monica to submit to her husband. It's no threat for the United Auto Worker to honor GM. Rebellion is so much a part of our national ethos, we can't even see issues of authority and submission properly. It's impossible for us. Do you understand that? And Scripture constantly hammers home that the reputation of our Heavenly Father is at stake with us being known for submitting to authority. And we are rebellion manufacturing machines. In our marriages, in our relationship with our parents, in our relationship with our bosses, in our relationship with the civil government, I'll never forget being at seminary. And this group called uh, Reconstructionists or uh, Theonomists, one of their heroes came to the seminary and spoke in an evening lecture. And in that lecture, the main point that he got across was to say that every man there should buy out of the, of the Social Security system because the Social Security system was a bad investment. Now, you don't know this, but pastors are taxed for the purposes of FICA as self-employed and for the purposes of the federal government as employees. That means we pay 15% of our income. Now, over 30, 40 years, 15% every single year, imagine how much money I'd have if instead of shooting that into FICA, I had kept that for myself. Every pastor has that privilege. Did you know that? Every pastor can opt out. Did you know that? So he said, get out because it's financially disastrous to be in the Social Security system. But here's the problem. The problem is the only way you can opt out is to say that you have a conscience that is bound by the Word of God that opposes the government having that role in your life. And there was not a mention of that conscience issue in that whole lecture. Now, what is that but to use the authority of God to trump the authority that God has delegated? And so pastors can opt out of FICA, and they have life insurance, and they have health insurance, and their wives, for the first few years at least, are using WIC coupons to get their cereal and milk and eggs. I mean, their children get grants Everywhere you look in the pastor's life, he's benefiting from the federal government being our God, which is really what the federal government is. Our provider, our Lord provider, you know. But he feels so self-righteous as he keeps that 15%. Now, you say, well, nasty pastors. And I say, hey, nasty you. I just don't know how it works with you. You know, that's how it works with me. All right. I'm in FICA. And I consciously tell myself all the time, yes, this is a a bust. But think of all the people this bust is helping. 
You know, it's okay. God will provide. God is the one who provides. It's not the government. Some trust in horses and chariots. Some trust in A-bombs. Some trust in the Constitution. But, Psalm 20 says, we will remember the name of our God. Okay? Okay? Give to God what is God's. He's not threatened by you submitting to your husband, you submitting to your father, your mother, your teacher, your professor, to the civil authority, to taxes. It it don't matter. But he wants your heart. And so where is your heart today? Does it belong to God? Do you trust God with your money, with your taxes? Do you trust God with your affection? Or do you wait every State of the Union message to see how they're going to pander to you this year? I mean, what a lousy provider. President Bush. You realize everything he gives you, he's giving you by the constraint of your great, 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 great grandchild. It's going to get paid for. Listen, people. We're not patriots. We fight. We join the Marines. That's good. We salute the flag. That's good. But we don't trust anybody but God. We give him our love. We give him our respect. We give him our obedience. And when he says, obey the civil authority, what do we do? Come on. Come on. Come on. Do we obey? You're going to obey on the way home, your speed limit? Come on. Seriously. You're going to be April 15th? You're going to honor your civil authority? All right, let's pray.